Happening now, we want to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good evening. My name is Jason Neifer. I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual supplemental program located on the University of Montana campus in fabulous Missoula, Montana. I'm joining you live from Missoula, where we are continuing to experience um, what for Missoula, Montana, is a very significantly cold and snowy winter. Um, and joining me as always, uh, Dr. Wes Fryer. Good evening, Wes. Good evening from Edmond, Oklahoma, where I'm actually outdoors. I'm on um, uh, dance uh, carpool duty tonight, and <clears throat> we had an, a forecasted ice Armageddon this weekend, four-day uh, weekend with uh, Friday off and the Martin Luther King holiday, minimal ice, uh, not complaining because we certainly can get it sometimes. But we were in that 75-mile window where the freezing line could have been either side, and we've been in the in the 50s, you know, the rest of this week for highs. So bizarre, uh, bizarre weather. And uh, I'll throw it up to Eric Langhorst in Liberty, where I think they also got uh, to miss the ice storm. Yes, um, this is Eric Langhorst. I live in Liberty. We narrowly missed the uh, ice storm this last weekend. They had to move the uh, NFL playoff game and all kinds of stuff, but uh, we are happy in Liberty. We survived another day. Um, it was bear-free, bear-attack-free at our school district today. We had our, the consecutive streak goes on, and it's just we're hoping, we're hoping that it stays. So I just, you know, any day without a bear attack is a good day. For yeah, us. It's, it's true, but we are prepared. So all I got to say, um, there, um, there was a bear in Bozeman High School. In Bozeman, Montana, I believe it was last school year where a beer, a bear had wandered into the high school. Now, um, I will say it was not a grizzly bear. It was a black bear. So completely different creature, completely different approach oh. to the world. So, um, you know, that's a, that's a Montana thing you might say, but, uh, yeah, very, very interesting. Um, that reminds me of a funny story. Um, I had spent some time in Alaska a couple of years ago on some site visits as part of my work at the University of Montana and, um, we were um, in in villages um, uh, that we had to go via airplane from from island to island in the in the part of southern Alaska, and um, um, we were told a story where um, one of the teachers told us that uh, they have a radio system that exists in uh, the village, and one morning someone got on and said, you know, watch out for your kids because, um, you know, there, there's a bear out today. So just beware. And, um, about three minutes later, someone heard a shot in the background and then an, an, an elder in the village got on the radio and said, don't worry. It's not a problem anymore. So, um, <laughs> you know, not to give too much credence to bears, but, uh, um, I have been in locations where bears were a factor. So just an FYI. There you go. Little did you know, everyone was going to get, a set of bear stories tonight on the tech situation <laughs> room. I'll have to give a little thought to mine and tell that one later. Well, Jason, what do we do on this show? Well, each week we take a look at um, headlines in uh, around the technology media and see if there's kind of an ed tech twist to them. You can find links to all the stories we're talking about and a lot that we don't get to. We tend to kind of dig deeply occasionally on stories, so we don't get to everything every week at our website, edtechsr.com. And I'll go ahead and get started this week because this is a topic that I'm surprised we haven't talked about before, but um, there's a there's kind of the micro story, and then I think there's the macro discussion about um, its impact on education. But Recode um, today reported that LinkedIn is going to partner up with 
a, another company to allow advertisers to dig more deeply into their data so they can, um, you know, deliver more advertising on that particular social network platform. And there's uh, two pieces to this that, that I think are interesting that I think are worth talking about. Um, the first one is the, the, the smaller issue, which is LinkedIn itself. One of the things that I, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm an active LinkedIn user, but I am on LinkedIn and I do get approached or maybe contact would be the better way of, of doing it by folks that are looking to recruit for jobs occasionally on LinkedIn. So I can't say it's been completely outside the realm of my usage, but it's not my go-to social network by any stretch of the imagination. And I do think the Twitter happens to be where educators go. So I guess I'd start with, um, Eric, are you on LinkedIn? Is it a factor in your life as a professional teacher? You know, I, I created an account years ago and I still, have an account, but um, I probably go in maybe once a year. And really, the reason why I go in is just if I'm like looking at somebody else, and then I have to log in so that I have access to like see somebody else. So um, I don't I don't use it, and I don't really hear many teachers using it as a networking yeah. tool. To be honest, absolutely. What about us? Yeah, I mean, I've had an account. It's one of those things you kind of feel like is a you know, oh, got to got to sign up and be present here. I felt that way about Google Plus. Like I didn't really right. want another social network, but um, you know, I have a profile and um, am, have at different times because I've, you know, have had a few different jobs, um, you know, seeing the relevance of it. But I uh, most notably, I guess, <clears throat> used that website, Have I Been Pawned, and saw that I was part of a, like, 2013 LinkedIn hack. So uh, anyway, that's, that's the most recent interaction I've had with LinkedIn was making sure I'd changed my password. Not, you know, not that I would ever use the same password in more than one place. I've changed right. my ways, but not it's not significant for me. But I thought it was interesting that they communicated it poorly, and 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 they talked a little bit about you know the clarification of saying we're not selling this individual data. You know, this is aggregated, blah blah blah. Um, and it links to one of the other articles, uh, I think the Evernote one that we'll talk about today, which you know the CEO was talking about maybe not communicating things as clearly. So I don't know. Privacy right. issues are big, and people need to be clear about those things. But, Certainly right. folks are going to give them a backlash if they don't feel like they're being, you know, treated, treated fairly or that they're being misled or, or having the, uh, having the rules changed on them. Right. Well, and, and I do think that there's still a lack of cognizance of, um, you know, when you utilize a social network and obviously LinkedIn would probably be a minor factor in the vast majority of people's lives in comparison to Facebook and maybe secondarily Twitter. But remember that, you know, th those services are, are free because you're the product, right? Like your data is being not directly sold, directly associated with you, but, you know, advertising um, is, is the business of Facebook and advertising is the business of Twitter, even though Twitter doesn't do it nearly as well as Facebook does. But I'm always reminded of the movie, The Social Network, about the start of Facebook. And I know that, um, you know, and having read the, the source material that, that led to that movie's script, that, you know, it took some creative liberties in the way it depicted the early days of Facebook. But advertising was not considered to be a, an early priority for Facebook um, because they wanted the, the you know, they didn't want to detract people by advertising. And of course, they've, you know, evolved well past that and needed to, to be able to become the world's largest social network. But the bottom line is, is that, you know, your social and personal data has become a currency that, um, you know, is, is utilized with advertisers. And we, I, you know, I don't think we can be conscious enough um, uh, to others, um, especially in the classroom, to, to let students know that that's the case. I'm going to add another note that 
where I have learned heard LinkedIn, I have heard of some business teachers and um, technology teachers that, as part of a lesson on professional networking, have had students sign up for LinkedIn accounts. Um, it's no different than a Facebook and Twitter account, in my opinion, in regards to the data trade, but just something to be cautious of that, you know, people are giving data that then is used then for delivering advertising back to them. I just saw a tweet from Peggy George. I don't know. There, it was weird. We, <clears throat> For those of you uh, tuning in, uh, well, if you're hearing the audio, it's not going to matter. But we had a little difficulty uh, with some links. And uh, either Jason or Eric, if one of you guys could tweet the, <clears throat> the current um, live link. Um, for some reason, it sure. seems like it, we get an auto tweet when we go live in a different language every week. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Seriously, I don't know where that setting is in YouTube. I'm just looking at it right now. That's pretty it's funny. It's weird. It's been in like in uh, Norwegian or, you know, Swedish or something. And I don't know what it's in tonight. But anyway, uh, we apologize if um, you've missed, you know, not not gotten that out there. But I think you guys on my phone, I'm on my iPhone. And then I told told Eric before, this is my Nexus tablet. So, yes, Wes is doing a little Android action. But. Neither one, I think, affords me the opportunity to grab the live link for what we're doing. Take it somewhere next, Wes. Um, all right. Uh, let me see if I can get there. Um, actually, the Evernote article, which I don't know which of you guys uh, put that in. Um, you did. Okay. Uh, Evernote's new app is more than an update. It's a reboot from Wired on January 17th. Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited about this because Evernote has been – one of my most favorite, you know, uh, tools, oops, lost Eric. Um, one of the best apps on my phone. I love, you have loved how it, you know, has worked across platforms. Um, the article details how they've, you know, as they grew, they, they kind of went astray. It reminded me a little bit of Apple with all these different products and, you know, needing Steve Jobs to come in and really focus the company. And so I don't know the, remember the name of their, their new CEO, but he's kind of come in and, you know, fired 47 people and caused a lot of hoopla when he started you know, charging, having people pay more and having, you know, less for free. But the exciting thing is the 8.0 version is out. I've downloaded it. It's simplified. And one of the most significant things in the article is that it's going to be using AI. Uh, if you'll give, you know, back to the privacy thing with, with LinkedIn, if you'll give them permission, you know, the goal is to be able to, you know, bring relevant um, text notes, you know, up at whatever time. So you could even say, you know, show me the notes that I made, you know, last weekend when I was, you know, up in Kansas or, or whatever. Um, and, and it'll be able to do that. So, um, Eric, are you an Evernote user? Or I think you're a Google Keep user. Is that right? What do you invest in there? I use Keep just a little bit. Um, I did have a premium subscription to Evernote probably like maybe seven or eight years ago. I just found I didn't use it enough. Right. Well, I was thrilled at this, and, and I was also excited in the article that they talked about how um, they're not going away. And of course, they could say that, and who knows? I'm sure everybody, you know, all these companies have a price, but basically, they're trying to be a hundred-year company and be around for a long time. And anyway, I'm very excited about this because the idea of the offboard brain, and they talk about how even before the iPhone, um, they had this vision of information overload that people are going to need to have tools to deal with that. And, and, and absolutely Evernote continues to be 
uh, one of the most important tools that I'm, I'm using. So I assume you're excited about this too, Jason, or have you, have you punted and gone to Google keep and, and now it does, it's too, too little, too late for you. Uh, it is a little too little too late for me. I mean, I did feel like that the the one big thing that that uh, there have been a couple things in the last year that have detracted me from Evernote. I was a premium user to user to until actually just recently. Um, it auto renewed on my iPad last January without me. Well, I knew it, but I had not gone in and stopped the auto renew, and so um, I got a year that I did not anticipate and I had largely moved away from it. And the, the tool that re, that, that replaced Evernote for me was actually Google drive itself. I'd been using it to keep track of, of, you know, tracking documents and such, um, you know, students that we were monitoring and stuff as part of my day job. And I just found that, 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 that uh, a Google spreadsheet or a Google drive document was a better phenomenon. Um, hello puppy. Um, uh, for, for, um, you know, those, uh, for those tasks for me, I'm going to share something tonight in, uh, my geek of the week that there's a, a, a free alternative now that, that called simple note that has kind of become, um, you know, my go-to for that kind of mental offboarding stuff that, that you're talking about, Wes. Um, but yeah, I, I fear it. I love Evernote. When I was an active user of it, it stopped making sense for me with what I was using it for. But I do hope that this provides an opportunity for, um, you know, the, the platform to stick around with OneNote being free, um, and, and, and usable across, you know, all platforms and alternatives like SimpleNote and Google Keep. Um, I do think it, it would be in a very challenging marketplace. So how do you guys differentiate, um, uh, OneNote and Google Keep from Evernote, and I guess now we have a new version of Evernote, so you'll be comparing it to the old. But how how do you how do you explain the difference, and why why do you guys like it? Why have you liked something better than Evernote up to this point? I'll speak briefly about OneNote. One, I think OneNote's confusing, and um, I have a lot of reason to utilize it. Um, that I'm involved in a lot of projects of people that are very excited about OneNote, and it's just not as easy for me to understand as Evernote or Google Keep or Drive or even Simple Note for that matter. Um and so it's very it's it's very, 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 very powerful, but it 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 seems to me that I like, you know, I, I have a, a OneNote account that's been around since OneNote was first free. Um that's based on my main email address and Microsoft account that's been around since, you know, the beginning. And there's a lot of false starts in there because I never really understood the power of of that particular platform. So I think OneNote is is, is hard to pick up. Um, that said, I think part of the reason why it's hard to pick up is because I started on Evernote and I started on Google Drive and trying to migrate in other that other direction um, has been difficult. Eric, how about you for Google Keep? How would you explain why you like it so um, much? Actually, most of what I do now is Google, just Google Docs. I'll create a Google Doc and yep. things like that. We, um, as a staff, um, tried to kind of adapt OneNote maybe five or six years ago um, when we had PCs, and it just... I don't know, it just it never clicked, kind of like what Jason said. I mean, it just never really felt intuitive. And I realized that me creating a Google Doc doesn't have as much functionality, but um, it's easier for me. And for me, the main thing is just to get it down. And, like, I still do a lot of pen and paper stuff. I have a little uh, notebook that I carry around constantly, and um, I've gotten to the point where I'll put a lot of stuff down on paper, and then it's just one of those little ones, and then I'll just take a quick picture with my phone, and then, you know, just pop the picture into Google Drive or whatever. And so then I've got a copy of my handwritten notes and stuff like that. So I know that I'm not fully using all the functionality. But for me, the most important thing is make it simple so I can get it written down so that I save it somewhere. 
Definitely. Well, I would say in the article, um, they talked about um, just trying to to minimize the workflow steps, you know, make it more streamlined. And it reminded me of this, like the ethic of minimal clicks from playing with media. And that's, you know, to take the the classroom focus, it's uh, it's hugely important that we know that we that we minimize the number of steps it takes to do something, because even if it's something like taking a note, which is really simple, you know, if it takes me five steps and I have to tag it and I have to choose a notebook and, you know, there's a bunch of things, then it's going to stand right. in the way. So I'm, I'll report back because I'm, I continue to be primarily an Evernote user, although tons of, of our meeting notes for school go into Google Drive and really learning from um, the K-12 online conference and organizing that for uh, a decade, you know, it's become really useful for us to just keep a, a, a running dock of, of our notes and yep. then always be able to go to it, and you can refer back and, and links and all that kind of stuff. Um, so. Well, I have to say, in, in absence of Google Drive, OneNote would be killing it. Or not OneNote, um, Evernote would be killing it, right? Like that's a that's really the reality we're in in regards to that particular set of tool. But because, um, you know, Google Drive is now a longstanding tool and is extremely functional and dead simple to use, you know, Evernote starts to make less sense. Yep. So, Eric, why don't you take us somewhere next? All right. The one article that I shared on the um, doc was an article I read two days ago. Um, a lot of reflection, obviously, as we transition from one president to another. And there was an article in the New York Times. It was actually a transcript of an interview where President Obama reflected on what books met, mean to him and what books he's read during his presidency. Um, he talked a little bit about some of his own writing and the one part in there that I thought kind of made a connection for this audience, um, kind of a touchstone for Wes and it addressed technology. They're asking him about um, novels and they said, you know, technology's taken over so many things. And he had a quote in there that said, I'm not worried about the novel surviving. We are a species of storytellers. And then he talked a little bit about how he kind of sees politicians needing to really be able to, you know, able to use words and be able to use um, text to really be able to kind of like build some bridges among different groups and things like that. So I thought it was a very reflective piece. Um, it wasn't really that high tech related, um, but he talked about um, some personal things with the books that he's read and, and he, it was kind of neat. He talked about how he wants to really catch up on some reading and things like that once uh, the transition happens. And so I popped that into the, uh, into the Google doc for tonight. Well, you know, the future of the book, the status quo of the book is definitely of, of interest, I'm sure, to every single educator. And uh, I don't know if we had this one in the show notes from a few shows back, but <clears throat> audiobooks have just exploded. And that was certainly one case where we had doomsdayers, you know, talking about the, the, uh, the demise of the book. But um, if you're looking for a flat world, you know, and it may not, I don't know how lucrative it is. I guess if you've got a, a golden voice and you can start fetching more money, but <clears throat> audiobooks are bigger, bigger than ever. And I have reached a, a turning point personally in my own reading really over the holidays. And this is just because of aging and glasses and stuff. I got, I got some new glasses and, and, uh, the optometrist one, or I don't know, whatever that he's, it's like, we're actually going to a laser eye place, or whatever, where they do different surgeries and things. <clears throat> but, um, you know, he said, oh, do you ever find yourself, you know, moving the book or reading material up and, you know, forward or back to be able to get it? I was like, oh, no, I don't have to do that. Well, I'd actually really not thought about it, and I and I do. And so I have been uh, literally struggling 
to get through this paper book uh, since the holidays, which I, I am reading. I'm, I've got into it about 100 pages, but it's made me realize how I, I've just crossed the threshold of where digital text that I can increase the text size is a big deal. And I have not had that need in my life or been aware of it as much as I am. So, um, yes, we all need to think about the stories we tell, both in class and, you know, with with other people, especially if, if we have a chance to ever give give public talks. So I'm glad to hear uh, hear that uh, he was talking about the books that he reads. And it'll be interesting to see. I'm, I'm rather, um, I don't know. I, there's, a, there's a lot of words I could say about the, the, the upcoming political season that we're in, and, and I'm not incredibly uh, looking forward to my news my, my, my Facebook stream. My wife's been pruning her, her stream a little bit, so I don't know who knows. We'll see what will happen. Um, what's interesting about that article, what a great article in the New York Times, by the way, but um, is that it reminds me of, like, I keep thinking to myself, when does President Obama have time to read a, a, a fiction book? I'm I'm not the leader of the free world, and I don't have time to read a lot of fiction. Um, in fact, my my book stack is, is, is getting pretty big uh, for if and when I ever finish my, my doctoral degree, but What's interesting about that to me is that uh, it reminds me of another New York Times article that I'll throw into the the show notes as well about um, Obama as a, a kind of a night owl that each night he would retire into an office in the residence that was kind of his place to go and, and read and watch ESPN and watch games and call and text colleagues, uh, write speeches and that sort of thing. And I can see him there maybe with a Kindle, um, you know, doing, you know, something with, along those lines, the book that he cited in the, um, um, in the article that Eric shared was, was published like in September, I think. So he's reading, you know, recent stuff. So it's, I think it's great that the president had time to, uh, you know, to read fiction, um, during, uh, during that job. I, I wish I knew a secret to be honest. I know. And, and if you feel like a slacker, I'm like, <laughs> I'm sitting here going, I don't have time to read. And I'm like, oh, you're basically running the free world and, you know, you can knock these things out. So I, I don't know if people like fly me all over the place, but I'm also not reading like, you know, debriefings of stuff. And so, yeah, it's, <laughs> I don't know. I thought it was just interesting. Yeah. In our defense, we also don't have a personal chef. So I yeah. guess there, there's that going for us. Like we don't have a pastry chef either. <laughs> what an interesting article. Um, okay. Uh, the next one I want to talk about uh is that there's a great commentary by Walt Mossberg in, I think it's today's verge about how ads are ruining the online experience. Um, and this is kind of related to our earlier topic today about, about advertising and social media. But the reason why I think that, that I think we need to maybe reapproach this is the, the broader notion that, um, there, um, seems to be, uh, another era coming in regards to advertising. You may remember when the web first started, you know, 15, 20 years ago, um, uh, funding itself via advertising that um, pop up ads or pop under ads. I remember the X11 automation stuff that had created, you know, terrible, terrible ads, some of which were, you know, like, like legitimate uh, uh, issues for some people that were prone to um, uh, be sensitive to flashing lights and all sorts of terrible, terrible, terrible things. And then advertising became more subtle and, and, and more integrated in the content for better or for worse. But Mar uh, Walt Marsberg, Walt Mossberg argues that um, especially in media, we are now 
um, getting to a point where the advertising is taking over and becoming somewhat obnoxious uh, to the point of distracting from the content and distracting from the platforms. And the one I keep thinking about when I read the article was, I don't know if you've seen the advertisements that that they're particularly on on um, on mobile uh, devices like iPads and, and cell phones that you're scrolling through an article and you have to kind of scroll through kind of a parallax ad almost that's over the top right. and those break my phone like the browser can't handle it and so like I'm literally you know, I'm, and I'm pressing harder like that's going to make a difference and you know it's, it becomes terrible and and I almost think that 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 well I I look at the advertiser and I'm pretty sure that my brain starts associating something negative with that and so um, the problem, of course, is that there is no, um, there's no great alternative, um, because this is what's funding the internet now. I mean, that's, that's the bottom line. Paywalls work in some contexts, but in a lot of cases don't. So maybe starting with you, Eric, how, how's your advertising been lately with your use as a, as, as a web user? Well, I related back to, um, YouTube. So I've been a, a YouTube red subscriber, mm-hmm. I guess, for lack of a better word for probably a year and a half. And I mean, I think that for me, I watch more YouTube because I don't have to fight the ads. Um, Of course, with Red, you also have the advantage of Google Play, which I use a lot in the classroom. I I used to use, you know, Spotify and Pandora, things like that. But I like being able to create a playlist. You know, we can do some goofy stuff like, you know, create a, a specific theme or something. And I like to play a lot of music in my classroom. So... I like being able to set up playlists. And so I've got that as an advantage, but I, I tend to watch more and more YouTube on my TV at home. And for me, the nine ninety nine a month is money well spent for both of those services. And if I'm, if I'm logged on at school, um, I'm not on my personal account and then I see the ads. So I kind of live in these two worlds. And when I'm on my school account and I do see the ads, it does annoy me because I don't have to watch those. Um, when I'm on my personal account. So from that perspective, um, you know, it's interesting to see how many different models will happen where you can pay to get out of ads like that. Um, but that's that's the first thing I guess I usually think of with ads. But I've had the same problem with cell phone ads where you're scrolling through and it just, it seems like a lot of times my phone will freeze. I got to completely, you know, turn on my phone, turn it off. And yeah, that happens to me as well. Yep. What about you, Wes? So, Interestingly, the, the places we I see ads now are when we go to the movie theater and we get there early, and I'm like, oh my gosh, it just it see when you're in a no ad world, um, it it is very jarring to be forced to watch them. Um, sometimes we have the radio on. We we haven't migrated yet to systems where we can we can plug in our devices. Um, but the other place is probably on Apple TV watching YouTube because. I am a big user of ad blockers. Uh, my favorite Chrome extension for this is uBlock Origin, which is a very lightweight, memory-friendly um, um, ad blocker. And, um, you know, I just am thankful to not have to have to deal with the ads. But uh, I'm definitely watching more YouTube on Apple TV. It's uh, one of my go-to apps, and I love the recommendation engine. And I do a lot of of liking videos that I like, of course, uh, making playlists, um, you know, uh, sharing things. And, and I know that, you know, I'm training the machine as I do that. And I, and I really, it's a, it's a virtuous cycle in terms of, you know, things that I'm very interested in with, 
you know, like green energy, solar, Elon Musk, just the future, um, the Kevin Kelly uh, stuff, uh, his book, Inevitable, I think, um, was mentioned maybe by Martin uh, and maybe our, our end of year show or something. So anyway, um, I, uh, I I definitely do notice, though, the difference between mobile and and regular laptop desktop web um, because, you know, mobile, I'm running an ad blocker and I'll have to, maybe it's called Crystal, I'll have to look later and see what it is on the phone. But, um, you know, it does with certain sites like maybe Fortune or Forbes, you know, they'll, some of them will try, will try to say, you know, you can't read this until you turn off your, your ad blocker. Um, so I, I hope that we're going to navigate through this and find some alternatives. Um, one of the places I worry is like on CNN, which, which I'm not on there all the time, but you know, they have sponsored quote unquote sponsored news articles that are right under regular articles. And I don't just wonder how many times it, they trick people. And, and it's like, come on, this is supposed to be legit news. And those ads are sold so prominently that I'm sure there's a lot of people that are tricked and think they're legit. So, so it's interesting you say that I've also seen, um, there's a lot of, uh, and I'm trying to remember some of the names of the websites. I think Outbrain is one of them, but there are other platforms that deliver viral content, um, on, you know, legitimate mainstream news sites. And I, I think it's very easy to get mixed up and, you know, kind of see that as I saw that on CNN. Um, yeah. I'm reminded of the notion of, uh, um, this is kind of an old joke in media, but I've heard people do this before. But you know, when someone referred to, I saw that in the, in the newspaper, and um, and you know, it was the National Enquirer, and or in fact, actually, in this is this is a from twenty years ago, but um, in one of the, one of the cities I lived in in Montana, there was a um, a prominent anti tax group that was uh, or putting advertisements in the weekly. Um, classified ad newspaper, free ad, classified advertising newspaper, um, a, against the levy. And I heard some people say, I read in the paper, right? And, you know, that's, that's a, a, a subtle older example, but, you know, I think we're, those lines keep getting more and more blurred in context of, you know, what, you know, what's happening, um, in, in regards to content. So I, I think it's something for us to keep an eye on. And, you know, we have to make our, our weekly, um, admonishment of fake news, but, you know, there's, there's, there's fake news and then there's fake advertising news. And, you know, there's just a lot of junk out there that you got to kind of sift your way through, um, in the modern media landscape. And that old saying I read in the paper is just like we probably all run across a student who has attributed an image or something else to Google, you know, I, I got it from yeah. Google, yeah, yeah. you know, which is like saying, I, you know, I got this water from the ocean. Or I don't know. It's you know, the right <laughs> analogy. Well, uh, I'd like to talk tonight. Uh, there's a couple groupings. Sometimes we're doing this in our notes. And by the way, if you want to check out any of our notes, you can go to edtechsr.com slash links. And we've got our Google Doc there. Uh, not our Evernote or OneNote or Google Keep, but the Google Doc. Um, we've got a couple things grouped under security and personal assistance. And I think I'll go to the personal assistance one uh, and call out two of them I put in. Uh, one of them, I was, I'm very interested in the follow-up to this because a few weeks ago there was a news article, which I think we talked about, where a police uh, group, a, a police department or whatever, um, law enforcement agency, uh, attempted to subpoena the Alexa records of someone who was either involved or present at the location of a murder. 
And there's an article that a legal blog um, put out. It's called, I now call Alexa to the stand what criminal law uh, can learn from civil law when it comes to e-discovery uh, by Jim Gill in Xterro, January 13th. And so uh, I've thought about tweeting some of my, uh, you know, kind of favorite, um, ed- actually they're people who used to be with, um, uh, what went, uh, what's uh, GigaOM. Um, when GigaOM went, went defunct, I, I made a Twitter list of all those folks and I still follow them as if they're, you know, still together. But uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. This article basically says that it was a very ambiguous request that they didn't specifically, you know, say what was going to be found. And and probably this is a little bit like, you know, surveillance in general, this idea that, ooh, I wonder what we might find. Let's, you know, let's have the whole record and see if we can, you know, get the continuous recording. And so the next article that's under here is uh, from Wired today, and it's Alexa is conquering the world. Now Amazon's real challenge begins. And... <clears throat> I do not yet have, I mean, we've got Siri and I think I might, I might actually stage an attempted um, recreation of the Cheetos moment, which we've talked about on the show before. And I talked about in that TEDx in November about, you know, really thinking that Siri was, was uh, passing on information to Amazon and Google and listening and knew, you know, when I was eating these Cheetos to advise me not to binge eat, but thinking about having this device in your house all the time, um, you know, I think that's a little disconcerting. So I know uh, that that Eric's got the the Alexa and, and Jason, you've got the the Google Now. So how are you thinking about this, Jason or uh, Eric? And have you thought about turning off Alexa sometimes, or are you thinking much about that as far as that it it's kind of listening all the time and maybe recording all the time? Um, yeah, we actually had a discussion with my nine year old um, probably three or four days ago. And I said something about, yeah, you know, that thing's listening to you all the time. And they're like, what? And so I guess, I don't think the girls probably really think about it. Um, I guess in my own mind, I've made that trade off of, you know, benefit as opposed to, to information. And um, I currently don't have a problem with it, but um, it, it does definitely make you think about, especially down the road, what the potential with that is. Um, we had a um, Xbox connect, um, that we used um, quite a bit, just playing games and stuff at home. And so, like, even that, you know, we had discussions about, you know, well, gosh, if they really wanted to turn it on or whatever, and there's, you know, a camera in our house and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's something we think about, but I guess at this current point, I'm comfortable with the trade-off. Yeah, and I think your language there is exactly right, trade-off. And that's that's for, in the Evernote article as well, because in order for Evernote to use AI – they're going to need to know more things about us. And they had a, a change in their privacy policy in December that led to a backlash. And people were like, what does that mean? Are they all going to read our notes? And, and this is where that, the CEO there had, had kind of come forward and said he didn't think he had communicated it well to basically make it an opt-in rather than assuming everybody wanted it. Um, but it, it is a trade-off, and there's going to be advantages. And, it, and some of this is going to come down to what company you trust and, that, and, and so that's going to be interesting in the precedents that are set. So if the precedent allows law enforcement to get a copy of, of all this Alexa recorded record, you know, that could that could have an impact on how comfortable people are, you know, putting these devices in their houses. But the second article that talks about Alexa taking over, um, I tweeted this quote. It basically says the, uh, one of the futurists predicts that we're going to. Um, soon have too many devices listening and they'll be confused. And so we're going to need kind of a central brain. And so basically we're going, 
we're like in a transition time right now where we're not talking to our house, but we're going to soon be talking to our house. Uh, and then the house is going to be able to be intelligent to know which device. There's like a proximity sensor, I guess, now in Alexa that will, if you've got multiple devices, it'll figure out what you're closest to. And then that particular device will will execute. So, Jason, you got any thoughts on this? And, and do you have a Google Now or a Google Home demo for us that will amaze us and convince all listeners to immediately, you know, put in their order? Well, um, I it's in another room, so um, it will not be <laughs> it will not be joining us tonight. Um, so I did have something interesting happening this week um, that I hadn't really thought about, and and it's a discussion I need to actually queue up with my wife at some point, but. Um, so I, I presented this uh, past Monday at the Central Montana Google Fest um, in Lewistown, Montana, and I used one of my, my more popular presentations of the last year, which is about um, uh, privacy and Google and Facebook. And to be very clear, one of the reasons why I focus on those two tools is not because they're you know notorious privacy violators, it's because they do give you some pretty great tools for locking down your data, right? So for me, that's one of the reasons why I like to focus on those two tools, because they give you a lot of tools to um, you know, to, to take control of what is saved and what is archived on your data. But, um, one of the things I like to show off is the fact that Google does archive your actual recordings of your voice with Google now. So if I say, you know, um, you know, Hey Google, um, you know, navigate to, um, you know, uh, 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 the, the, the grocery store. And that's something that, that I can, I can do. Well, it will record, it will obviously record that I made that, that transaction with Google because it does that and you can see your history there, but it actually takes the actual voice clip and makes it available to you. And what I didn't realize was that my wife, who's also using, um, you know, the, the Google home in our home has done things like started the radio up or stopped the audio from playing. And her voice is now being archived on my account. And, you know, I'm comfortable with that with me, right? But, you know, that's a conversation I'll need to have with my wife, that if you're going to use this tool, just please know that that's the case. And if I want her to continue to use it, she may make me turn that off. I keep it on because it's a good demonstration to use, you know, when I'm talking about privacy and data archiving. But that is something to, to keep in mind. So that is, that is you know, my latest kind of foray into um, the Google Now. But um, I will say, you know, we're about uh, six weeks into the Google Now. It's still a great tool. We use it almost, uh, I would say, every day. But it still has a long way to go to beat the Alexa on functionality. Sorry, everybody else is asleep and I had a dog that needed to go out. So I needed to leave and come back. So all good. That, that's all. That's also to do with hooks and just how long it's been around, right? So yep, the, that, more, absolutely. Yep. the more open APIs, and, and this will come down to programming, and we'll probably have network effects, you know, set in. Uh, but just like the, the App Store, you know, for Apple is quite dominant because of, how, I think, how well they've courted developers. And also the fact that you can't just try out an app, you have to buy it. And they've, you know, it's not a... A, a gravy train of the yellow, you know, the, the, the gold, the road paved with gold as far as for every app developer. But it's going to be really interesting to see how this develops before our very eyes, you know, in the next probably not just decade, but probably the next, you know, two to five years. And um, it, we're just at the beginning. So I we talked a couple weeks ago, I think, about um, Ben Wilkoff's neighbor or whatever who's you know coded something that tells them microbrews and that i'm i'm going to i don't know i won't commit to it for sure but i'm really leaning towards investing in either an alexa or a google now 
for school and then working with our STEM club and, and kids who are coding and, and to you know give them some kind of a challenge as far as if this, then that. Would you guys recommend the Alexa since it's so far ahead, having been out longer than the Google Now? Or what, what would be the best one for a school, high school STEM club right at this point? Hmm. I, mean, I don't know. I don't know about the functionality of like hacking it. Um, well, I just mean getting it to that, do stuff, like getting it to do interesting stuff. If this and that. Um, so when you say Google Now, do you mean like Google Home? Oh yeah, sorry. I meant Google Home. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, we have the we have the dot primarily just because it was the cheaper one. Um, so, I mean, they've been kind of running pure at Excel every once in a while, but I, I've seen it like forty dollars every once in a while. Um, I think during Christmas it was down to. 40 or something. I can't remember, but that's why we have that one. Um, we've actually talked about possibly getting one in like one of the girls rooms. Cause they use it. We use it for like a timer. We use it for music. We use it for weather in the morning. Um, just pretty basic stuff, but we've been happy with it, but I don't have any comparison with the, the Google home. So. And from what I understand, the Alexa is wildly more functional. Um, I think the the harder part would be deciding which one has an easier kind of fake account you can set up that doesn't have any personal data or connection to ordering something. And yeah. so I think that's that's probably part of the piece. Um, <laughs> the school might be challenging there for the kids because yeah. yeah, wasn't there something about somebody on a talk show said, hey, Alexa, yeah. order a certain doll. And then everyone's yep. TV was on, ordered it or something. Yep. Yep. And, and that's, well, and, you know, if you think about it, like, you know, terrible advertising, you know, hmm. you, you could see your, your ads maybe contacting your home, speaking of talking to your home to do something in regards to that. And that's, uh, that's, that's a bit maybe like advertising dystopian. So. Yep. I'll do a very quick shout out and then I don't know. We, we started a little bit late, so I guess we can go a little bit later, but under security, I put Gmail hack, um, I hadn't heard this source before, but one of the um, uh, other uh, staff members at our school shared this. Actually, our social media uh, coordinator, Gmail hack, even tech-savvy users fooled by sophisticated phishing technique. And, you know, we've we've uh, beat this drum multiple times. We'll continue to, I'm sure, on the show. Uh, but it's very, very reasonable that any of us could be tricked, even trying to be careful. So... I put the links to Google's official support page to prevent and report phishing attacks. And then they also have a, a nice page to avoid and report Google scams. Uh, we were talking about this tonight in the car, uh, driving to drop the girls off at church that, <clears throat> you know, one of them was commenting about one of these iPhone, you know, win an iPhone and just, you know, knowing that that was not legitimate. I was like, that's great, honey. I'm glad you, you know, you can recognize that this is my seventh grader, but, um, a lot of things out there and uh, it's, it's probably worth, you know, peru through. We, we talked about Podesta, uh, you know, democratic party chairman, as far as how he, that there was a, a missed a typo in an email where, where he, he had a mistake, you know, again, turning on two factor authentication, you know, can be good. Just be very, very careful whenever you are putting in your credentials um, because the, the savviness that that article is basically saying, you know, friends of yours that have been hacked, they'll have algorithms that will grab subject lines that you that have been used previously that might be finally mm -hmm. changed and then attachments. Um, but the key is it's when you put your credentials in and you authenticate. So just really, really be sure when you're putting in your password that, you know, it is legit and they're making the making the attachments in the websites, you know, look very legit and 
we heard a year ago about one of our other independent schools in Texas that had a, a what's called a targeted attack. And and they were they knew that they, the school was a Google app school and <clears throat> the email looked like a Google document that was being shared. But indeed, when you clicked it, you know, it, it was not. And it was it asked you to authenticate. And as soon as you did, you know, they had your credentials. And so that also speaks to how many things you've connected to your Google account or to your Facebook account and being aware of that. And doing a little cleanup with that. That's a good security cleanup thing to do periodically is, you know, what are all the websites I've authorized to use my Google account? And if you're not using that app or using that website, you know, revoke those credentials and um, perhaps think twice about, you know, using that single sign on. I'm not at that point where I'm not doing it ever, but I I listened to a Security Now podcast uh, a few weeks ago that was talking about, this is pretty deep into the geek woods, but OAuth, which is the authentication protocol that lets lets you, you do like a single sign-on. And so you click sign in with my Google and it will pass those credentials and et cetera. And there evidently are some, some issues with that. So anyway, just be safe out there, people. Uh, I, I feel like that's about all I can do as a tech director. And I don't know, it's who knows if it helps or not. I hope it does. Okay, let me take the next one here. Um, I posted a really interesting article from Wired called Move Over Coders, Physicists Will Now Rule Silicon Valley. And the context of the article is, is that the, um, uh, due to big data and the programming of software and the kind of experience and interesting pieces that big data requires, um, physicists are now finding a lot of, um, um, uh, work in, in, in both startups and established Silicon Valley properties. And the claim of the article is that the, the kind of next generation of need in regards to, um, you know, experienced trained people is, is, is physicists. And the reason why this article, um, kind of tempted me to talk about is that obviously that's very interesting and they don't really go much into the move over coders part because that's the part that originally struck my eye was that, you know, we have all this hand wringing in the United States about the lack of coders and need more coders and hour of code and da 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 da. When if if it's true what this what this article is suggesting, maybe we should also be having hour of physics in the spring, and that you know physics is a highly trained, college educated um, you know profession that you know doesn't have a lot of alternative routes to. Um, it's been a long time since you can self teach yourself physics um, and expect to be able to work in context of that industry. So um, it, it it's an interesting shift. Um, the art article is super interesting, but it's just yet another way that, um, you know, things are changing as, you know, technology properties are becoming not necessarily as much about the function as about the way it uses big data to estimate and analyze, and that, you know, things are, are you know, kind of going in, in that particular direction. Um, that said, um, you know, I, uh, you know, I don't see a lot of super big physics programs in high school, for example. Um, you know, it's usually treated as an elective in a lot of high schools, an upper division science elective in a lot of high schools. And so, um, you know, interesting of whether we should be changing this or what direction we should go into. So do either one of you have a thought about physicists, the all new nerds? I, I read the article and the first thing I thought of was uh, a great book I would commend to people called All the Devils Are Here. And it's about the housing crisis. And a, and a big part of how all that happened was 
rocket scientists, literally, and smart, you know, astrophysicists, physicists, uh, got employed by banks to create these new instruments. And I'll have to challenge my brain here to think about what they are. Uh, it's basically when they roll in all these different mortgages and it, and it becomes impossible to predict right. the actual risk of it. It's been the mortgage backed securities and the, um, I'm just thinking of the big short now, the yeah, movie. Right. No, yeah. it's, it's that stuff. And, and that's yep. even referenced in, in this wired article. Um, that, that, you know, a bunch of physicists have, you know, worked for finance companies and are, uh, you know, which is credited with, uh, you know, co- contributing significantly to, um, uh, the, the housing crisis and that whole, you know, the bailout and all that stuff. Right. You know, I don't think we're going to have tons of people who are going to be, uh, majoring in physics. I mean, that's it, it, when you look at, you know, some of those folks that are doing that stuff have their PhDs in string theory and, I mean, it's awesome stuff, but look, we're not going to be, you know, getting a majority of, of kids to, to be able to operate at physics that level. But it certainly speaks to, to data. And, and the reason why, I mean, there's multiple reasons why their skills are so useful. I mean, they're working with, you know, tremendously large data sets and, and then being able to apply artificial intelligence and machine learning. So I, I don't know. I mean, how we, we, I think I can say this with confidence using the crystal ball, which I have, and I hope my dogs are not making too much noise. They're starting to they enjoy fighting every night. Um, we'll switch the camera here in just a minute and have some a little diversion. Um, crystal ball, it, it, it goes back to that uh, Douglas Rushkoff book, uh, Program or Be Programmed. You know, there are – it is going to be a relatively small – number of people in the population who are writing the algorithms, who are creating the code, um, the degree to which we can encourage students, you know, boys and girls to, to go in that direction and to pursue STEM careers, I think is a very positive thing. But it would be misleading for us to imagine, you know, we're going to make everybody into a coder. We're going to make everybody into a physicist. So I think it, this speaks to the importance of STEM programs. Um, but it, that's not going to that's not going to solve the upcoming employment crisis, which automation is going to bring. It's just going to cause us to need to talk more about universal basic income. So you're you're doing stuff with STEM, uh, Eric. What do you, what do you think about the whole push to to get kids in STEM and you know see um, see how that's going to play out in the workforce? Yeah, I mean I agree. It's you know the whole hour of code thing is kind of like this big movement, and I mean it's it's good I think to expose people to all that. Um, but like you said, it's not like we're going to create, you know, a large percentage of the population that's going to be able to do high level code stuff. Um, I think that it's good just to kind of let everybody dip their toe in the water and, you know, experience it and stuff. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's not something where everybody's going to be able to do it. I don't think. Or needs. But that's it. But that's a question, basic literacy, right? David Warlock's one of my favorite. Eric and I have had our picture taken with David years ago at, at MBTC. You know, his books about redefining literacy for the 21st century. Love that book. Um, literacy's changed and working with data and working with code and being able to manipulate, you know, streams of information and, and filter and all this. Um, but, it, but it's like, it's like reading or being able to work with big data. There's like different levels of what you're going to be able to do and, you know, I'm not right. going to be able to work with big data on, you know, a deep level, but I need to have an understanding of, you know, data. So I think that's, that's where it becomes, you know, it's just not like I can code and that means, you know, 
everything. So, you know, there's obviously degrees, but I mean, I think it's good that people at least understand a little bit of a sampling of what it is so that, you know, they can make an if this, then that recipe and kind of understand what's happening and, you know, maybe change like a line or two of code on a website to, you know, include a a table or something like that. I think that's good. Should we do one more and then head out for the night? That sounds good. Uh, let's see. I'm trying to see if there's any other other ones that I dropped in. You want to talk about the <laughs> the heart patient one? Yeah, that one's a quick, easy one. Um, the article is from the International Business Times, and this was pretty pretty interesting. But basically, um, doctors have been using machine learning software um, to uh, Protect or predict when patients will die from heart failure with about 80% accuracy. And, um, basically, um, you know, data over time has provided them opportunities to know how inside the body works and starting to allow doctors to much more quickly react and determine not only diagnosis, but or diagnoses, but, um, also potential cures and next steps, um, in context of medicine. And, I keep thinking about this in, you know, like what can the, what can big data and what can machine learning do for, you know, highly specialized tasks. Um, and, and one of the ways that we may see something like that is in regards to learning, right? Like we still, I think there's still a lot of mystery about how people learn, you know, and part of that is the conflicting data in one direction or another, or if you're looking at it for more of a cognitive approach or more of a social approach or da, 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 da. But, you know, what's interesting about that to me is that imagine for a moment, if we could take big data and insert it into a, a classroom scenario where, you know, personalization means that we're really are looking at, you know, what the most likely scenario is about how to approach a topic or a subject or a skill to give teacher and student the opportunity to really know what happens next. And so, you know, I think that, that that's pretty interesting stuff. Um, and I don't think we see like, unlike, you know, highly, Specialized industries like medicine, we just don't see big data being used in schools as much as maybe it will be in the future. Any thoughts about that? Makes me think of Star Trek, right? What was the uh, the Star Trek where Spock is in that? He kind of descends into this virtual reality, you know, environment simulation, and and he's um, you know going through his lessons and things. Um, it's it's one of the more recent ones that, that they did, not the most recent one, but. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I'll, I'll say this. We did, when we were down in the Dallas area briefly over the holidays, Facebook, uh, for the first time has set up, uh, these booths in the mall to preview VR and to, um, you know, be able to experience face that, what did they, Oculus Rift? I think that's who they bought, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And so their, their vision of that. So I don't know. That's, that's still, I think, a, a, a bit of a distant dream. Um, but, you know, virtual reality, augmented reality and the customization of learning and being able to have experiences that are, that are customized. Um, differentiation is, is here for my wife, uh, teaching third and fourth grade with iPads when it comes to, uh, Dreambox, which is the math app they use, um, uh, Lexia with Core 5, which is the reading app that, that differentiates and, and customizes to the students. And to a somewhat lesser degree, um, literacy apps like uh, Newsomatic and, and these other things that are leveled, you know, to the student 
student uh, ability level. So I, I don't think that AI and machine learning is has been applied yet, but I'm amazed at how many articles I'm reading now. And maybe it's because I'm sensitized to them and we're picking up on them, you know, for the for the show. Uh, but I just don't think the words machine learning and AI were nearly as mainstream even just a few years ago. And and I, I seem to be seeing them, you know, all the time. now. And curiously, um, with your focus on STEM, Eric, uh, do you guys chat about big data at all? Or is that something you guys can conceptualize in context of, you know, getting kids interested in STEM? Um, we haven't. And again, like my technology class, I teach one eighth grade class and we do right. kind of a hodgepodge of random stuff. So, um, we, do, we do have students that, um, are in the project lead the way track, um, mm -hmm. it's a little bit more, you know, obviously structured and things like that. So, um, they might at that level, but I, I don't at the eighth grade level. Yep. Well, and I, I and I imagine that the challenge is like, I'm not even sure how I would approach it. Like it, because me myself, and again, my, I, my, my background is, is, you know, history and, and political science, but you know, like I see this stuff and my jaw just drops, right? Like I can't even conceptualize, you know, like I get the power of it, but you know, the things it's starting to do, um, is, is pretty mind blowing. I imagine that's, that's, you know, quadruply true for the typical 13 year old. So, I mean, um, have, big, big topics. I've shown them like a TED video with some of like the, there's a recent one about like swarming where, um, you know, and I mean, at, that way they can kind of like visualize it and things like that. Um, I think we watched one also when we talk about drones a little bit where, you know, drones, the smaller drones can kind of act like as a group and like as a swarm of animals like that. But I mean, that's pretty much all that we do as far as that type of stuff. Jason, is the Montana Digital Academy going <clears> to, <throat> offer anything on STEM ethics, AI, big data. Do you, you see that as a, obviously it's not going to be a required thing that anybody's going to do, but right. we're participating in this thing called the Malone network, which is out of Stanford. And so these are some really niche high end classes that you, you really can't take. So they're doing some app development. You can take, I think Greek or, and, and, you know, do you guys, is that a niche that you guys fulfill as far as courses that there's no way you'd have those at school and they're going to, really be sort of on the cutting edge or are you guys more main sort of mainstream? Um, we're more or less mainstream right now. And we're focusing mostly on computer science stuff uh, because that's, that's what the, the energy seems to be around right now. But we, we have a medium term roadmap for something like that. Cause I do think that there is, um, you know, in the same way that you know, like the teaching of, of biology, for example, has become much more about molecular biology and DNA and, and, um, you know, the, some of the more, um, you know, modern topics in biology. I think there's other ways we can approach science too. And physics is probably a great example of that. I'm not first enough to articulate why, but, um, there, yeah, I, it's something we, we're, we're very interested in because I do think that, you know, um, it, it, it's not going to be knowledge. It's going to be useful probably for a year or two past the time that, that, that kids are immersed in it. But that's part of the point, right? Is we need to start immersing students more in some of these topics that, that are going to be, you know, right now very much under the, the, the mainstream, but will at some point be a pretty huge deal. So I think it's time we move to our geeks of the week. Um, Wes, why don't you start off tonight? All right. So, uh, I did a, a post in December called Give Your Family the Gift of Digital Security or something like that. And, the, of course, if I wrote that post, I'm going to need to walk the walk and do it. So at the uh, last night, I think, before our son went back to college, we all sat down. And I worked with the kids quite a while. And I actually still need to work with my wife. But we 
we we have a family pack for for one password and got that set up for everybody and uh just actually helped my daughter the other night uh create her first password which it was was secure with like you know 20 characters symbols and all this stuff um but part of that was installing for the first time some antivirus anti-malware on our Macs that we have and so my geek of the week is the Bitdefender family pack it's a year license. It's $50 off. So it's 70 bucks. Um, my son, we, we uh, put boot camp on his Mac because he's got a program, uh, called, uh, SolidWorks, I think, which is a CAD design program for his engineering and it's Windows only. So anyway, we're, uh, once you, if you get the family license, you can put it on unlimited devices. It uh, doesn't have an iOS version because iOS doesn't really need that, I guess. Uh, you could, you can run it on, a- on Android which I guess I should put that on my, my little Nexus tablet that I was using tonight. Um, but we've got that on his Windows machine, and we've got that on our Mac. So, so far, I don't think we've caught anything. Um, I've men- mentioned that as a, a tech director for the last year and a half, you know, I've seen a handful of malware things for, for Macs, and so I, I think we've crossed the threshold where Mac users no longer need to worry about running um, a malware. And um, I did a little research and, you know, checked out what – what looked like a good deal. And I think it's, um, you know, we, we didn't buy a two or three year license because I, I want to see how this goes and whether we're going to renew or not. But it's an expense we haven't made before as a family. And I think it's, you know, probably a, a good, good thing. But my wife being uh, Chromebook only and iPad only is not needing that. So um, another reason why Chrome is a wonderful thing and just don't have to worry about it with that platform. Great. Thank you. What about you, Eric? All right, so mine is one that I don't think you guys have talked about in the past. It's um, Ancestry.com. They do have a program where schools can apply for a basically like a year-long free access, um, and I've done it the last two years. Um, and it's not it's not really like a competition type grant. You just apply for it and uh, fill out an application. Um, it does run on the school's actual like IP address, so. Um, We've had kind of a little bit of mixed results. Sometimes a student off-site can access it, but for the most part, it's meant to only be accessible when you're on your school's network and your IP. But it has, uh, you basically get free access for your entire um, school um, for Ancestry.com and then Folds, um, which is like the military records, and then also Newspapers.com. So I have a link on my classroom website, and you have to be within the school district's network, but I have students that, um, use it in different classes for like National History Day stuff. I've had, um, you know, students just kind of on their own do a little bit of research. I've introduced it to our History Geek Club. Um, I've researched some of my own family stuff. So it's just kind of nice to be able to introduce students to that um, and just let them kind of do a little bit of searching. And um, it's a great it's a great opportunity from Ancestry to be able to do that. And um, I did put the link there in the show notes. You just have to apply and um, it is, it's pretty specific to the IP and everything, but, um, it's really worked well for us and it's kind of a, a cool way to introduce them to researching family histories. Great. Thank you. And I'm sharing tonight, um, a, a, an app we re- referred to a little bit earlier called Simple Note. Simple Note is a free, um, and, and oddly advertising free, um, service that allows you to take notes, text notes on an application, whether you're on iOS or Android, PC, Mac, um, 
Uh, there's a web-based version of the tool, and it's kind of become my go-to for simple jot down of things. Um, and and what I usually actually usually use it for is when I write longer emails um, that I want to save text from to reuse, since email is a good percentage of my my day. Is um, I'll usually utilize that then to save a copy of that email to refer back to if I want to use language from that again. Um, it's exceptionally easy, and that's what I like about it. And it's not very fancy which is also what I like about it. Um, there's no advanced sharing features or any of the really great stuff that OneNote or, or Evernote can do, but it's a great simple app that um, has been, um, you know, uh, low overhead and in great service. So simplenote.com. Okay, well, that wraps us up for this week. Um, Eric, why don't you tell us where we can find you on the internet? All right, so on Twitter, I am E. Langhorst. Um, I do a blog at speakingofhistory.com. And I do a vlog called The History Geek Teacher. Last week I did a feature about some of my top photos of 2016. Great, thank you. My name is Jason Neifer, and I'm available on Twitter at TechSavvyTeach. I blog at blog.ncc.org, um, where I am the NCC Tech Savvy Administrator in Residence, and um, I'm here every week on the podcast. And Wes, why don't you send us off? All right. Well, I'm Wes Fryer, W. Fryer on Twitter. Uh, my blog is speedofcreativity.org. I did mention, I think, on the show last week that a New Year's resolution has been to post more regularly on our school's learning showcase blog. And so I'd invite you to check that out at showcase.cassidy.org. did an interview with one of our eighth grade um, algebra teachers who has been flipping this classroom and, um, you know, got the got the 30 minute audio up on opinion as well as on YouTube and hope to be doing that weekly. So thank you so much for tuning in. Please remember to follow us on Twitter at EdTechSR. Also, we've got a uh, survey that is not very popular, but we'd love to know uh, who you are. So you can certainly tweet us to let us know if you listen to the show. You can fill out that survey and you can find out about our upcoming shows. We are normally here on Wednesday nights and all of our show notes are available at EdTechSR.com slash links. Until next time, stay safe out there.